right in because I know everybody's got a lot going on today. It's good to have everybody here. Zach was just telling me he's teaching a Bible study back home in the book of Acts. That's pretty exciting stuff, so we're always excited to hear that. So let's jump right in. We've been in this series called Alternate Reality, and as you and I as believers, as we begin to dig into this and dig into the Scriptures, need to understand that you and I are in a world that we are not a part of. We are simply sojourners on a journey of eternity with Christ. When we look at the definition of the word reality, it's the world as, or the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. Now, my daughter is back there running the slides for us today, so if she gets a little bit behind, give her grace. She doesn't get to do this a whole lot. As you guys may have heard, uh, uh, Ethan was having some uh, tremors early this morning, so they took him to the ER to try to find out what was going on. Uh, when I say early this morning, like 2 a.m., and so they sent me a text message. I haven't heard if they're home yet or not. They're not home yet. Uh, but uh, So just be praying for him. But anyway, so that's where they are today. But as we get into this idea, is what is reality? And there's things that we're going to discuss a little bit today, in the terms of like absolutes and relativism and, and, and such as that. But the reality is, is as born-again believers, is that you and I are a part of a kingdom that we cannot see. It's not like we can just walk around and there's like, you know, the Crips and the Bloods, they got the Reds and the Blues or the Greens, I don't know, the Jets and the Sharks, pick whichever group of gangs that you want, and, and you're just like, oh, look at them, they're just like me. In fact, today it's becoming harder and harder to determine who is a Christian because the definition of that word has changed over the last 20 years and even longer than that. Because it doesn't mean as it meant in Scripture. As you guys know, I've, I've said this before. That Christian was not a term of endearment that was given. It's only mentioned three times in the Bible, twice in Acts and once in 1 Peter. It was one of those terms that was to like put a name for that weird group of people that wouldn't act like the rest of the world. They wouldn't talk like the rest of the world. They would not engage in the activities the rest of the world was doing. And so what do we call these guys? Well, they were followers, and they think it's interesting, Christian. Christ was not Jesus' last name. I didn't know if you knew that. Okay, on his birth certificate, it wasn't Jesus Christ. It's not how it worked. Christ was a, a title. And so they were these followers of uh, the Messiah. And so as they isolated, and there's something unique, and that is why the persecution of Christianity happened for so many centuries. is because they didn't do what the rest of the world What's doing? And it should be concerning to you, and I know that it is, when Christianity seems to fit in so well with our culture. It should be concerning to you when we are not facing persecution. It should be concerning. Because we are not meant to get along with that other kingdom. Now, I know I've talked about this, but remember, from the very beginning, when God created everything, He creates Adam and Eve, and from there, the world comes, they've got the sin that happens, they fall, they go forward, they've got this time span of which you had worldly things going on, of which God sends a judgment in the form of a flood, separating those who are righteous that He had pulled out. Later on, you got the whole Tower of Babel event. And from that moment on with Abraham, he created for himself a people group. And they were to be completely separated from everybody else. That was the nation of Israel. When they would go into a land, he said, don't take their wives. 
because they will make you worship these other gods. You are to destroy all the high places. These were the places of which they worship. Many of us believe when we think high places, we're thinking like mountains. No, high place could be no taller than this chair. It was nothing more than an altar that a sacrifice was made on in order to sacrifice to a, a deity that was not Yahweh. They were to be separated. No matter what took place, through that separation was to be an example to the rest of the world. Now, outsiders could come into Israel and be a member in, in covenant relationship with God, but they had to forsake everything. Get rid of it all, their heritage, their false gods, all of that, in order to do that, to come into relationship. Now, do you know what the definition is of that transformation that took place? Repentance. Remember, repent means to change one's mind. At one point, they were worshiping a God over here. Life was good for them, supposedly making sacrifices, but at some point they realize that that is the one true God as they come over here. They have to repent, change their mind, turn from their ways. There wasn't a, a time of remorse or crying or sorrowfulness. It was a time of, wait a minute, this truly is God. And so now, post Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we are in a covenant relationship. There are still two people groups. There are believers and there are unbelievers. And you and I as believers should sound different. We should act different. We should respond different. And it should be in such a way that we receive persecution. And yet often we don't. Look at John chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 13. It says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. This is Jesus talking. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. you know how many times he said truth there? Do you think truth matters? Absolutely it does. What did he say? I have given them your word. Your word is true. If something is true, then you can take it to the bank that it is going to happen. That it is the right thing. I had a young person years ago tell me, I was, I was teaching in high school, and it was an early morning Bible study thing that we were doing. We're talking about the ideas of truth and how there is an absolute right way and an absolute wrong way, but they're both absolute. And truth doesn't change. And she said, you know what, that's not right. She said, because as we advance science, we discover new things, and now we know that what we believed before was wrong. Good intention, young lady. And you know what I said to her? So wasn't this the truth the entire time, and we just didn't know it? She's like, oh yeah. Just didn't think that through, right? Did the truth ever change? Absolutely not. Does God ever change? So is it fair to say that with the way we see God respond, the things he said, and every promise he's made, we can have an expectation today in our lives? And maybe we should. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Now by this we know, that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. 
He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now, this is John writing to a bunch of unbelievers, right? No. There's no passage in the Bible unbelievers. Every one of these groups that were written to were believers in Yeshua. Every single one of them. And he says, he who says, I know him, should be obvious because he keeps his commandments. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk as he walked. And when we read that, we're thinking, okay, well, we need to be good and we need to be moral and we need to be kind and those are all great things. But that's not what John's talking about. Not alone. You see, he's talking about a representation that you and I as his imager should be going about and doing the very things that Jesus did and saying the very things that Jesus said. And the Old Testament Israel knew God, they were in a covenant relationship with Him, and they obeyed the commandments as a result of that. That's what brought them in it. But when you and I are looking at this, you and I are in a covenant relationship because we have put our trust in Jesus. And as a result of that, we do what? Walk as He walked. Now, how much of the world is walking as He walked today? It's not true. A large section of the world is. Our section of the world is not. You see, here's the thing that's going on overseas. I say overseas, that's a loose term. That's everywhere else. You are seeing evangelism take place in the most persecuted parts of the world at an alarming clip, like percentages that you can't even believe. You are seeing miracles taking place that you and I, I mean, we would just be talking about for years, and it's commonplace for them. It's normal. Healings, dead being raised, all of this stuff going on at an alarm rate. And you know why that is? Have you ever thought about that? We make a lot of excuses for reasons we don't see things. Part of it is, is that in Mark 16, it says, these signs will follow them that believe. After he said, go into the world and make disciples. And what's interesting is that in most of the world, they are actively engaged in the process of making disciples. And what the Americanized version of Christianity is, is we have a discipleship class, and we talk about God a little bit, and we make Him a small part of our life. But that's their world. They do it while they're working, while they're farming. They don't necessarily, in parts of it, have jobs like you and I where we go punch a clock. Part of it is they are hand-to-mouth every single day. They've got to go and do whatever in order to survive. It's a completely different world out there than it is here that is why when you send somebody on a mission trip and i i mean a true mission trip where ministry works being done not a vacation where we went to a church that we don't speak that language there's a difference and you see how the rest of the world lives you're so grateful for how easy we have it it amazes me that people are complaining about the life that they have to live in this country i'm like leave it then go see how they got it you're doing all right When I hear about the church in El Salvador that on a weekly occasion goes around door knocking, talking to people, what are they doing? They're engaging in the work of evangelism, doing these different things, all of which is what Jesus did. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, it says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. And in Ephesians 5, 1, it says, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. So who is our example in all of this? This is always Jesus. We are following after his example, what he said what he did, even to the point of laying down our lives for the kingdom. When Jesus was dealing with Nicodemus, he was showing that there were two worlds 
that were at battle here. You have the spiritual side that you must be born again. And you have the natural side, which is the only one that Nicodemus understood, saying, how? How can I be born again? What are you talking about? You see, what we've got to understand here is that Jesus was our example on the earth. What I told you guys last week, and I want to be careful when I say this because people will take this too far, is as Jesus was on this earth, so are we today. You and I are not God. But Jesus did not come to this earth as God saying, I'm God, I made all of this, it's mine, do what I tell you to. He came as a man. He did not just walk around saying, oh yes, worship me. He did what we should be doing. Look at John chapter 5. Verse 17, it says, but Jesus answered them. My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Okay? Doesn't sound like that big of a deal, right? And then he says, verse 18, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. That's interesting. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So what is this telling us? That Jesus didn't arrive on this earth with all his God power, his creative ability. You'll notice that there were no miracles until the Holy Spirit came upon him. There was nothing that was done until that moment. It wasn't like he walked around. He grew as a child. He came to an understanding of who God was. Look at Luke chapter 1. This is talking about John the Baptist. It says, so the child grew and became strong in the spirit and was in the deserts all until uh, the day of his manifestation to Israel. And then later you see with Jesus in the next chapter, in verse 51, and then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. If he was God, why does he need to be in favor with God? How can you grow in favor with yourself? See, what Luke is saying here is on this earth, he was just like you and I. He grew in his understanding of who he was and the will of his father. He grew in his understanding of how God worked. He grew in his understanding of the authority that had been given to him. And how did that happen? Was it a series of supernatural events that took place and revelatory things? As we saw last week in Luke chapter 2, what was he doing? He was back in the temple asking questions, learning, engaging, and they were blown away at such a young man and he says i'm about my father's work how did he come to these conclusions he read the scriptures what we call the old testament everything that he grew and learned about god in those moments came from the study of scripture i'm not saying nothing supernatural ever took place i don't know there's no record of it what i'm saying is is that we know that he read and he read and he read because he recited. So, things that God does supersedes natural laws. You see, God created a very orderly world, a universe for that matter. There's no explanation for it. 
Because according to the scientist, okay, we went from disorder to order, which breaks scientific laws, but I don't want to go there today. Okay? And we have no explanation of why our planet is positioned in the way that it is, as a happenstance, that it can support life, and why things are so predictable. I mean, we were discussing flying this morning because Jim was told that when he was getting ready to fly back from North Carolina that it was too hot and the plane was too heavy and it couldn't get up in the air. And I didn't, I didn't even know that was a thing because in my mind, there should be no plane in the air because it's too heavy. It's just how it works. And Terry was explaining, that's a real possibility. It just wasn't too hot. Jim was saying that if it's weather-related, they don't have to put you up at a hotel room and all that kind of stuff. But what God does, and he creates this orderly world of which you and I have predictability because there's never a time in our life on this earth when something that goes up does not come back down, right? Has that ever happened? Don't tell me, oh, you got stuck in a tree. Don't go there, all right? It's always teenagers that do that to me. Every time, it's predictable. You know what's going to happen. And so as a result of that, every time God intercedes on behalf of man, it is something contrary to the natural law, something that doesn't make sense. And so as a result, it grabs everybody's attention, right? Can you think of some events that took place in the Old Testament that as Jesus is reading, thinking, man, this Yahweh character is awesome. Can you think of something, maybe anything? So the interactive part here. Oh, Paul, the Red Sea. Have you ever had this big, great expanse of water? Like, man, I need to get across this. I know what I'll do. I'll lift up my hands and it'll just open right up. Us. Who needs a boat? We would have loved that during the flood, right? Been awesome. You stay over there. You go there. I'm going to Auburn. Not two and a half hours all the way around. I'm not bitter. I'm just saying. Yeah, the Red Sea. And as a result of the Red Sea... What happened? Everywhere they went, the world had heard about this. But what was before the Red Sea, Paul? Uh oh, put him on the spot. He doesn't, doesn't do well under pressure. It was the ten plagues, the plagues of Egypt. As exactly as God had laid out that the timing of which they would be in Egypt, He brought them out, bringing judgment against the gods of Egypt and thus freeing His people. That's just an example. Here's some more. How about the bitter water of Mara that was made sweet? Wouldn't that be nice? How about, here's a fun one, okay? For those of you that grew up out in the country and you wanted water, what'd you have to do? You had to dig a well. Is that fun? No. Is it cheap? No. Wouldn't you like to just hit a rock? Wouldn't that have been sweet? Just walk up to that old stone sitting there, just whack it one time, out comes all the water you need. That would have been nice, right? How about Aaron's rod that budded? I mean, there's tons of these things. How about, okay, God sends judgment, a bunch of serpents that bit, and they were people that were dying, and God said, okay, I'll fix this for you. Take a snake, make it of brass, put it up on the hill, and everybody who looks at it will, uh, will live and not die. Oh, that makes sense, doesn't it? Why haven't the doctors figured this out? People get bit by snakes today. Just build this brass thing, stare at it, problem solved. Okay? Here's another fun one. How about a talking donkey? 
Yeah, I know when you watch CNN, you see some of that too. I could see him thinking that right then. I could, I could sense it. But it's not the same thing. See, one of those items is presupposed to be intelligent, somehow made it on TV and proved it wrong, and one of those is not. Turns around, talks to him, right? How about Jordan, when the river separated and they crossed to go in there? How about when Jericho's walls fell down? How did they take him down? Have you ever tore down anything? I have. There's one of a couple ways, okay? You can blow it up. You could burn it down. That's more fun. You can get in there manually and start beating stuff out of it until it finally caves in, and you better be on your toes. Or you can get large equipment to do it. You know what I've never considered? Because I've tore down a few buildings. I've never marched around it seven times and yelled at it. There was some yelling going on, believe me. But that never crossed my mind. It's like, you know, it worked for them. Maybe I should give this a go. There's a lot of this stuff. How about this? I know every morning when I get up that the sun's coming up, and I know every night it's going to go down. I was told recently, I think it was, oh, I can't think of the name of it. There was some country. I, I don't know if this is true, but this is funny, Okay. But it was some nation that is not America, okay, because we'd never do anything like this, was talking about building a rocket that would be able to land on the sun. Right, I know. But doing something so that they get up there. And somebody said, no, 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 you can't do that. You'll burn up. And they're like, no, no, don't worry. We're going to go at night. <laughs> I pray that's a true story. That would just make my world. But I know every night that that sun's going to go down and the moon's going to be out. We can predict the patterns of which the moon is going. We know when the new moon's starting. We know when full moons are going. We know when the eclipses are going to happen. Why? Because we live in a very orderly world. But there was a point in time where the sun stood still. And you can actually trace that throughout history. How do you explain that? It doesn't make history books unless there's something outside of the norm going on. How about... Raising up the widow's son from the dead. Don't know about you. Don't know too many dead people that have not been dead anymore. They're alive. They're back. Don't know any of them. Okay? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Here's the fiery furnace. I'm going to throw you in there. Who's that fourth guy? Why are you walking around? Okay, you guys can come out now. That's not how that works. How about Daniel? Here, bunch of hungry lions. I'm going to throw you in there. What are you doing? Why are you riding the lion? Again, you could go on and on and on. There's so many of these, but you've got to understand something. This is what Jesus was reading. And when he reads it, and any Jewish person, especially at that time, you know what they're reading? They're reading the history of how God has intervened in this natural world, supernaturally, on behalf of his chosen people. So what expectations would a young man have growing up? That's what they would have. It'd be like you and I reading about the founding fathers and how, how the, the Constitution was ratified and all of these other things that took place. When we read it, that's our history. We go back and we're in awe of that. Stan, when he talks about D.C., when he goes on these different trips and all these cool things, and he's got this story of some war that was thwarted. You have to ask Stan because I'm going to butcher this. But like two guys sitting at a restaurant and hammered out some details and stuff. And here's what we know. Food's awesome. It brings peace. But I mean, again, S. Stan, that's a terrible rendition of that story. He's sitting back there, he's like, why is he talking? 
Here's the thing, guys. It's like when we read stuff about that, we're like, man, that's crazy. When we walk into these places like D.C., I've been there. It's incredible. And you're seeing like, man, that's where Lincoln was shot. Man, that's where this took place. I was in Dallas not too long ago. I had Isaac with us or with me. And uh, we were driving around right where JFK got shot on that road and all of that. And it's like, man, this is the, like, the stuff that we've seen. These videos. It's like, it's cool. And imagine being a young Jewish boy and you're reading this. You're like, that's the God of my people. There's no one like him. What expectation would you have? God can do anything. And he will do anything. But what expectation do we have? God used to do stuff. And he does stuff other places through other people. And they're cool, but it's not me. You see, you and I have to begin to think differently. Because we are created in his image as his immature representative of him. Go to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 verse 1. It says, Beloved. So who are we talking to? Not the infidels. Right? Do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into this world. And by this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. Now let me stop for a minute. When it says of God, what does that mean? Your origins, your nature is derived from God. And he's making a distinction. There are spirits in this world, but don't believe them. You better test them. There are things that are going to happen that will even cause the elect to fall, but don't believe them. You test them, whether they are of God or of the Antichrist. Because the Antichrist, and there have been many, is a pseudo-Christ. Is there an Antichrist in this world today? Do we have a pseudo-Christ in this world today? Absolutely. Turn on social media. Turn on TV. The image painted of Christianity is not the one from Scripture. How can you have ministers, pastors, and believers not celebrating this decision by the Supreme Court of Roe v. Wade? Overturning a law that should have never been established in the first place. The battle's not over. But it's a big sin. How do you not celebrate that? Because, and they're always talking. About, I literally heard a pastor um, talking about how this is a travesty because God loves bodily autonomy. Travesty. I've heard them use scripture after scripture in support of keeping Roe versus Wade. How do you do that? Because many false Christs and false prophets are in this world. Remember, anti-Christ is not just against Christ. It is a pseudo. It looks the same. It sounds the same. But it's not the same. How do we know? We test them. If they are of God or not of God. Two distinctions. There's only one or the other. Look at verse 4. You are of God. Who is the you? It's the beloved that he is writing to. And in this case, these are born-again believers. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Who is the them? 
those followers of Antichrist, the pseudo-Christ, the one who is not of God. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Who is the he in you? God. Who is the he in the world? That is the enemy. We hear that verse all the time, but we miss the other parts. He's greater. Verse 5, they are of the world. Who is they? These followers of Antichrist. Therefore, they speak as of the world. And the world hears them. Now that's concerning, isn't it? Because does the world hear part of the church today? Absolutely. Do we have ministers that have an open invitation from people like Oprah and can go on these news organizations? Yeah. Why is that? Is it because they're being confrontational with the truth and saying, no, that is wrong and let me show you why? Absolutely not. It's because they've created a pseudo-Christ made in the image of this world that people can easily follow. What do you think Jesus meant when he said, narrow is the world and wide is the road? They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is so powerful. They are of the world. We are of God. They speak as of the world, and the world hears them. He who knows God hears us. Who is that? Born again believers. They hear us. He who is not of God does not hear us. That means everybody else. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Two different worlds colliding with one another. They are of the world and the world hears them. We are of God and the world does not hear us. That doesn't mean that they don't hear what we're saying. That means that they are not taking it in as truth. They're rejecting it. We live in a world today where truth is on attack. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now this is Paul speaking here. We're going to start in verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now you have to understand what's happening. This is in Corinth. This is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. It's a wacky church. There's a lot of stuff that's going on here. Some will joke and say this is the first church of the Californians, all right? But what would happen is the merchants would come in. They would have these different speakers, and they would sell items. But they would, it was called adulterated, and sometimes, I think the NASB says adulterated here, is that the substance were mixed with something cheaper to cheat customers as a merchant. So in other words, they were watering down the whiskey, if you're, you're familiar with like the Old West and stuff like that, because it would make... The substance that looked the same, but they would water it down to make it go farther, thus increasing profits. Okay? Now, in the same boat, many times they would have, there was a circuit of professional speakers. They were philosophers. We're in a, a Greek mindset here. Greeks and philosophy go hand in hand. And they would travel around, and many times these professional speakers would be accused of doing the exact same thing. They were watering down what was truth, 
because it would build an audience. And by building an audience, what do you think happened? It increased their viability. So they were watering down what they were speaking of and making it more palatable to the masses. There's, there's things out there that they talk about all the time. There's two ways to become rich in life, okay? Creating an item that is so pure that only a select few can, would get it and could afford to do it. So selling one item for a million dollars. Or taking something and watering it down and making it as cheap as you can, but you can now get a million people to spend one dollar on it. This should be the gospel. Because not everybody wants it. Do you realize that when you, the gospel is rejected as you're sharing it, that's not your problem? Let's go on. Verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now he's continuing on here. But he talks about the gospel being veiled. Okay? Jewish teachers would not explicitly talk about the God of this age. But here we see something. Is that... If our gospel is veiled, in other words, they cannot see it. It's only to those who are perishing, who the God of this age has blinded. They do not believe. So should we expect them to listen to us? No. Should we expect some pushback? Yes. He said, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So, Ken, is it true that we can see how God reacts based on Christ's life on this earth? He is the image of God. Are we not called the same thing? We are. Verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservant for Jesus' sake. Now, this is interesting, and this is where it gets confusing. We do not preach ourselves. Every other philosopher and speaker that was going around, just like uh, rabbis of that day, were going around and building a following for themselves, taking upon themselves disciples. But Paul is saying that we are not preaching ourselves. We are preaching the one they need to follow. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christ is the one of whom we are building disciples for, not ourselves. That was contrary to every other person at this time. Now, when it talks about bond service, some versions say slave here. To be a slave of a high official during this time meant to hold more honor and control than the majority of the free world at that point in time. To be a slave was an honorable thing in this thing, depending on where you were. When Paul calls himself a bondservant for Jesus' sake or a slave of Christ, this is a title of honor. No different than when the prophets of the Old Testament would call themselves servants of God. He's using the image here of a hired servant whose sole purpose is to do the will of his master. Verse 6, it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, he's making an image here back to the other person in the face, the light in the face. Who is that? Moses. That Jesus' testimony, the glory of him, is greater than that of Moses. In verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that excellence and the power may be of God and not of us. When it says earthen, it doesn't mean of this earth. It means things like clay and stuff. These were considered everyday items. They held no special value. 
They were often broken and discarded. That's why when you see they're doing archaeological digs, they find pieces of shattered pottery everywhere because they were cheap, they were mass-produced, easy to make. You could get your hands on them. The gold ones and things like that were set aside for purposes and special things. He's making that we have this treasure inside of earthen vessels that is the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. In other words, it is based on what God has done, that new man inside of us, not this Not our speaking ability, our charisma, our ability to draw a crowd. It is the power of God inside of us. This can go away. God's power never will. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Who's got the song going through their head right now? Anybody? Yeah, okay, we're all there. Fine. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so then death is working in us, but life in you. The Christ himself living in Paul, living in the other believers through the Spirit. This bearing around, this dying of Jesus was typically referenced to Paul bearers. It was implying that Paul not only preaches, but he carries around Jesus dying in his persecutions daily. What we've got to understand here is when he's talking about what we're doing, it says, verse 11, we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. Is that true here? No. And it should be concerning. Because we're not taking such a mighty stand that there is a hatred against us. We have adopted a philosophy of getting along because it's much easier. It's a lot easier to walk down there and just pick up that incense and just pinch a little bit and say, Caesar is Lord and go about your life that you may live and take care of your family and do all of these things, even though that is not the way. It's a lot harder to say, I will not do that and to take a stand. You see, that is why Paul was constantly facing death, why he was beaten time after time after time. If you were coming to Foundations, I showed that clip from that guy. He, when Paul would go into the bathhouses, and that's what every Jewish male would do very frequently, and he would take this off, they would talk about like the beatings on his back that he had taken. And it would stand out to him because that was typically only true of those who had been criminalized of some sort, convicted of a crime, which Paul never was. But he spent time in jail, and he talks about this. I've been beaten beyond measure been in hunger, been in cold, been tired, all of these things. He was doing this for Christ's sake. But it wasn't happening to him because he was getting along. He didn't walk in to the synagogues and say, Jesus came to give you your best life now. He has a marvelous plan for your life. Follow him and all your troubles will be washed away. He never said that. The reason he faced persecution is he was always in their face with the truth. Verse 13, and since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. Is that a Psalm 116? We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of the Lord. Do you realize that if God is not true to his word, 
then this life on earth is all that we have. And if he will not raise us up, which is why we are doing the work of which we are doing, then there is no sense in doing any of this. But it is the guarantee that Paul had knowing that God would perform exactly how he said he would because he had done it all throughout Scripture. He would seen it with his people. That he knew that every beating I take is for the glory of Christ. Verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Where was his focus? Not on this life. Not on, on what could happen to him or anything like that. He was more focused on the mission of God because this eternal life is so much greater than anything he could have now. Many philosophers would contrast temporal and eternal, but Paul here is talking about that it is, and it's a bit of a play on the words, that by seeing with your eyes, you're seeing the temporary, but seeing those things that you don't see, those are eternal. How do you see something you don't see? Okay, I was doing a, a magic trick for a bunch of kids one time, and I, I was saying, okay, you know, I've got here an invisible deck of cards. Have you ever seen an invisible deck of cards? Three kids raise their hand. I'm like, if you see it, it's now visible. No longer, anyway, says a lot about our public school system, but going right along. You see, you got to understand something, is that Jesus on this earth was doing things that ordinary men weren't. God in the Old Testament was superseding the absolutes of this world and doing things that got the attention of the world around him because it was contrary to the norm. Let me give you an example of this in 2 Kings chapter 4. Okay? Verse 1. It says, A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elijah. Now, that's a, quite a title, a title here. Woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets. Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. That means he owed them money. He can no longer pay. A widow cannot take care of herself. So they are coming to collect for the debt that is owed. When it says take them as slaves, they would be voluntarily going as indentured servitudes to work off that debt. Okay? That would have been the agreement set out ahead of time. Verse 2, so Elisha said to her, well, what shall I do for you? Tell me what do you have in your house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. He says, well, go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons. Then pour into the, all those vessels and set aside the full ones. Now, if that's you... And I told you to go do this today. Would you not look at me and be like, man, you've been in the sun too long. But there was something about it. Because she didn't hesitate. She went. Verse 5. So she went from him, shut the door behind her and her sons, and, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. And now it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, well, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another vessel. So the oil ceased. And she came and told the man of God, he said, go sell the oil, pay your debt, and you and your son shall live and rest. Now, this is amazing. 
Have you ever poured out an endless bottle of oil? No. I literally equate this story to something that goes on in my life. Because what would have happened if she had more vessels? It had kept pouring, right? And in fact, it only stopped when she did not have anything else to pour it into. Okay? This is like my son Josiah, who talks endlessly. He never stops. He doesn't breathe. It's just on and on and on. He's five years old. I think I told you guys a story. I took him to swim lessons last year, and I couldn't tell what they're doing. They're supposed to be bobbing up and down, and I finally realized. And he's just jabbering. I can't understand half of what he's saying. And he bounces up. And he's telling the story. I'm like, oh, you're supposed to go underwater. He goes underwater and comes back up still talking. I To this day, I will not know how he pulled that off. All right? But didn't blink an eye. But this is something supernatural. This woman was in a situation in which was not her fault. A creditor was coming to collect, and God intervened on her behalf. If she had not been obedient, what would have happened? She wouldn't have had her two sons there. She was obedient to God. Did Jesus read this story? Oh, you better believe it. Did Paul? Did all of these guys? And what did they do? Look what God did. So what did they expect God to do? The exact same thing. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered said to him, It is written, Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now we know that this was a temptation. We know that there were three. We know that every time Jesus responded with Scripture, right? And in order to respond with Scripture, what must a person have done? Had read the Scriptures. He responded in kind. But look at the, the, the passage here. If you are the Son of God, then command that these stones become bread. Here's the newsflash, folks. It's not a temptation if it's not possible. You ever turn a rock into bread? Me neither. In fact, I wouldn't turn it into bread. I'd turn it into something better than that. But it's not a temptation. In other words, the enemy recognized that the Son of God could do this. Otherwise, it's not a temptation. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers before his face, and as he went with them, they entered the village of the Samaritans to prepare for him, and they did not receive him because his face was set to the journey of Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw, they said, Lord, you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy, but save them. And they went to another village. Now, again, I talked about this last week. Jesus didn't rebuke the statement because it wasn't possible. He rebuked the manner and the spirit of which they were coming and bringing judgment on them. But what made them believe that it was possible? As Elijah did. You see, they read the scriptures, accepted it as truth, because this was their history. I got news for you folks. This is our history. Because it's the same God. Is there anything that is not possible for him who believes? No. You see, we're talking about absolutes. There was no doubt in their mind. Go ahead, Jesus, give us the word. We're going to burn these folks up. How dare they disrespect you? There was no doubt. Jesus never had a doubt. Paul never had a doubt. Peter never had a doubt. He didn't, he didn't sit there for a moment when that man at the, the, the gate, the beautiful gate was sitting there like, hey, can I have some money? He's like, oh, I don't have any. 
He's like, uh, stand up and walk? No. He reached his hand down there and he picked him up. There was no doubt. Why? Because he knew how God had performed every single time. He lived his life with Jesus and watched God move on behalf. There was no doubt. Absolutes will make you bold. You see, there are things in Scripture that are contrary to the things of this world. Contrary. Things that don't make any sense. Let me give you a couple quick examples. We'll pick up on this next week. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work, as it is written. He has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, so supply and multiply the seed that you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness, and you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. What did he just say? Well, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. These are agricultural terms. So if you go out into 100 acres and plant Four seeds of corn, you don't need a combine to harvest that. You can walk out in the same amount of time as stuck you to take, stick it in the dirt and pull the ears of corn on. But if you plant that field, then you know that the harvest that will come will be a, a representation of the effort put in there. And he is specifically putting this in the area of giving. He's saying, if you give generously with a cheerful heart, you will reap the same. If you give stingily or not at all, you will reap the same. Does that sound like the world that we live in? No, it goes contrary to that. You're telling me, God, that if I give away my money, that you will bring more back to me? Well, look what he says. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower. Who gives you the seed? And bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. In other words, by me being faithful to you, God, you're going to continue to give me seed. It's the, the law of sowing and reaping. It's all of this stuff. But it is contrary to the natural world. Because we're told we've got we to build our lot. That's our money. Yeah, it's okay to give a little away. But don't go crazy. I have known people who were on a fixed income. And when somebody came to their house and didn't have money for groceries, they'd empty out the fridge. In fact, it was a problem with the husband and the wife. The husband would give it all away. She just bought it. I knew a guy who would go out and he would buy old appliances and fix them up just so he could give them away to people who needed them. And he never had a lack of appliances. In fact, he never lacked the funding to buy them when they came up. Got it. Same with them. They never lacked groceries in their house, even though he always was giving them away. Because who provided the seed? Look at Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye, and if therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. Therefore, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is the God of riches. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? 
which of you can worry, uh, by worrying can add one cubit to a stature? Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. That means trust. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the, ki- heavenly fa- uh, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things sufficient. The day is its own trouble. What do we seek first? The kingdom. Why? Because we know God can provide. When the Israelites were wandering around the wilderness and they had no food, what did God do? He provided. Was there ever an instance in which God did not provide? No. When the fishermen had to pay the taxes, what did Jesus say? Go over there. There's a gold coin in the fish's mouth when he pulls it in. I would fish a lot more if that was regular. You see... God supersedes the laws in place on this earth. It's absolutely true that God provides. He provides seed. Are we going to sow it? That's just one example. Everything that we have seen God do, we need to read. Is like, wait a minute. This is what he did for them. Why would he not do this for me? This is who God is. We should expect it like we expect to jump off a trampoline and it to hurt. What goes up will come down. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. You see, when it says the law, we have laws, the laws of gravity. The expect- it is consistent. It always works the same way. There's never a time that gravity on this earth does not work in the way that we intend it to work. Naturally. The law of the spirit of life has made us free from the law of sin and death. You have the law of handwritten documents that brought death, showing us we needed a Messiah. We're talking about the Ten Commandments and the Levitical law and all of that. But the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is written on our heart. It's made us free. So therefore, we, don't, we are not chained by sin. We are not subject to death. Christ has defeated all of that. These are the absolutes. As Jesus grew, as the others grew, they were moved by the absolutes of what God had done for them every single time. Does God work in mysterious ways? He does not. We have too many buzzwords in our theology. We have got to get back to Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, and we thank you that you have provided, sustained it, kept it for us, that it was written down for our benefit, that we may know exactly who you are, that we may know exactly how you'll respond, how you'll move in every situation. All we have to do is trust your faithfulness. Lord, I pray that you just move in our hearts, that we become closer to you, to be your image and representative on this earth, to share the gospel every day, to not be ashamed of it, to not be afraid of it, to not stand down when times get tough, Lord, but to always be the voice of truth, 
to always be your hands and feet. And Lord, I think that everywhere we go as we preach that gospel, that you confirm it with science following. Lord, be glorified in every aspect of our lives. Lord, we give you the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. The foundation's right.